Well, we are finishing up a series on resilience, uh, looking at the book of Ruth, and we've been looking at uh, how do we adapt, how do we bounce back from the adversity, the trials, the troubles that come our way, and so we've, we've looked through the story of Ruth, uh, which isn't just the story of Ruth, it's the story of Naomi as well, uh, and so we saw that Naomi lost her husband, and then she lost her sons, and she had to go back home, and she expressed that she was bitter now. She wasn't pleasant anymore, but she had someone on that journey with her. She had Ruth who came back home with her, and uh, they, they had to risk things. They had to go out in the fields. Ruth went and uh, kind of went and harvested behind the workers, and eventually they found favor, and she got to work alongside the harvesters. And then last week we saw that, that Naomi then uh, pushed Ruth to make a marriage proposal. And so uh, Ruth made the proposal to Boaz, and where we left off on the story, he told her that technically he wasn't the most closest person uh, to fulfill that, that, uh, uh, that family obligation, uh, but he would go and make sure that she was taken care of. He would talk to the other person first, and if they didn't want to get married to her, that he would. It feels really weird. I know in our society, it's not how we are used to talking about marriage. That's what it was. Um, but we saw how resilient that family was. And so what I want to end with today is what is it to have a resilient faith? Because we've talked about kind of resilience, um, about being vulnerable and about caring for the poor. But I wanted to kind of step back and look at how does our faith become resilient? And I want to start by saying what I think we often think it means to have a resilient faith. That often what we think it is to be resilient is, okay, hard things come my way, and I'm going to be a tough person. I'm going to handle it all myself. I don't need anybody else. I can do this myself. And that's not been the story of Ruth and Naomi. Uh, their story is one about community. And so what I hope that we can do this morning is talk about how a resilient faith is about having an ever-expansive community of faith. Uh, it keeps looking outward, it keeps growing and, and, and adding more people to it, and that the community itself is charged with being resilient, and it's not about being an isolated one person. And so we've seen that in the story, that Naomi didn't come home without anyone, she came home with Ruth. We saw a society that helped provide for those who had nothing, who left some of the harvest behind, or who invited them to a meal or made that work easier for them. And then we get to the end of the story, and it's about taking on a family again, and the community's role in that as well. And so I think we're going to see a little bit about resilience in the community in this conclusion of the story, but then we're going to take a step back at the end and look about why the story's even being written and what was going on in Israel that makes this a text about resilience. So, Naomi's story. Um, we we kind of skipped over a part where Boaz went and talked to the other guy. Said, hey, do you want this property that, uh, that somebody uh, who died left behind? And they're like, oh, sure. He's like, oh, you got to marry Ruth as well. Oh, hmm. Uh, I don't know if I can do that. So they back out of it. And then Boaz talks publicly to the people saying, here, you're my witnesses. I am taking uh, Ruth in and I'm going to marry her 
and I'm going to kind of acquire all that was Elimelech, Naomi's husband's um, property and his, his line, and I'm going to take care of them. And so that's kind of what happens before our text starts. And then it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Now that's kind of straightforward. It sounds like a lot of biblical texts. But that's the first time that we really get God as actively involved in the story from the narrator's perspective. We've done this whole story, and we haven't heard a whole lot about what God's up to. We hear people talk about God. But they see God in connection to new life so strongly that you can't help but mention where there was barrenness, where there was emptiness, where there was pain and loss and separation. New life comes about, and i got to say God's involved in that. And so it talks about God's involvement in the new life that comes. And so they have a son. And what I think is really fascinating is I think for some of us, we think, oh, well, I have a kid. It's my kid. Again, that kind of individualistic turn. But it's a whole community experience. And in the story, it says that the women of the city said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. If you remember last week, we talked about how important it was for them to have kids in their society because um, they thought about life continuing through your bloodline, through your kids. And so um, they were incredibly afraid about not having kids. And again, we could talk about whether that's a great mentality or not, um, but that is the mentality that they had. And so they felt like they had nothing, and now there's new life, your bloodline continues, and there's hope for her. And so they're celebrating that to her. And then they keep going, they say, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I'm sure that for many in this room who maybe have seen grandkids or great-grandkids, you've had that moment where you felt that uh, that restoration, that nourishment of seeing new life, seeing that cycle continue. And that was something that she didn't expect for herself at the beginning of, of the story. But now the women of the community are celebrating that. And then they tell her something else. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. And that's one of the first places where we get love talked about in the story. Remember last week we talked about how Ruth, she's kind of proposing to Boaz, and it's not out of this kind of love and this passion or, or, or desire, but it was out of loyalty to her family and to continue that family line. And here we get the note about love being about her mother-in-law, that, that Ruth really loved her mother-in-law. And so they're celebrating that Naomi had something of value. She had a daughter-in-law who cared about her. And so Ruth has this child, And instead of the kind of concluding scene being them bringing the child to Ruth and like Ruth taking care of her kid, the concluding image is them handing that baby to Naomi, to that person who lost everything in her life. And so they hand her the baby and they they laid him in her bosom and she became his nurse. They're really trying to emphasize that it's like her own child. That person who lost everything now has a child to have hope in. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name and saying that a son has been born to Naomi. 
And so, the story that started off with someone who lost everything ends with Naomi having some element of restoration. Uh, she lost her husband and her sons, and now a new child is born to her. And so, Ruth and Boaz's child isn't just about them, it's about that wider community, it's about their wider family, that neighborhood, that village around them are also involved in celebrating that life. And I don't think we can truly appreciate the conclusion of this story and the genealogy without a little bit of a history examination. So I'm going to go a little bit into teacher mode. A lot of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, however you want to call it, is stories of exile and return. Because that was the cataclysmic event that shaped their faith. If you can imagine, in 586, when Jerusalem gets destroyed by the Babylonians, they were a religion centered around a temple. And so how am I right with God? I make a mistake, I go to the temple, and I offer a sacrifice. Someone comes and destroys your temple, well, what do I do? I know I messed up. How do I get right with God again? And that, that's like a huge existential crisis. Uh, that's a huge thing. And it wasn't just what do I do without a temple, but the way Babylon conquered people was they would extract people. So they would take you from your homeland and use you as servants to work back home in the major kind of capital of the empire. So all of these people in Jerusalem that were educated or, or, or had wealth or um, had value according to Babylonian perspective were ripped from home, dragged to a new land, and forced to work for the empire. And so you have these Jewish people throughout the, the Middle East who are having to wrestle with, well, what do I do without a temple? What do I do with a mentality in that ancient world? If you lost in battle, it's because your God was weaker than their God. So how do I make sense of this faith in which I lost? And so they're trying to reimagine what exactly happened there. And so there's all sorts of retellings of that kind of story under the guise of other stories. So you might hear the hints of it in the Genesis story. It's a story of people who owned a nice land that was fruitful and had a lot of great things, but we disobeyed God, and we lost that piece of land, and we got kicked out. How on earth do we get back to paradise, to that land of, of security and of, of, of plenty? In our story here, Naomi, they're experiencing a famine. They have to leave Bethlehem. They leave Israel, and they go to a foreign land, and they lose everything, and they have to come back, and they're bitter. And how do I start over again after, I, after I've lost everything? So you see all these kind of motifs in which how do I live through exile and return? So that's historically what's happening uh, when this book is being written, is they're wrestling with these themes. Now I'm going to I'm gonna move us to another biblical text written at the same time so we can really appreciate the value of this book of Ruth. When when you return from exile, they were faced with the question of how do we make sure this never happens again? How do I make sure I'm never ripped from my homeland, that I'm, uh, that I'm secure, that I follow God correctly? And so you get books like Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I'm not sure how often people 
read Ezra and Nehemiah. Most people know it just because it's about rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls. But you might not be aware that they have a giant divorce ceremony. That sounds a little weird, right? But a giant religious divorce ceremony. They get home and they say, okay, well, we have to be obedient to God because we were disobedient last time and we got thrown into exile. So if you read Ezra 9 and 10 or Nehemiah 13, um, you get them wrestling with the fact that when they came home, they had lived lives for a few generations and got married to people out in the world. But they had some biblical texts that said not to marry them. And so they're saying, well, how do we be faithful to our kind of way of life when we've now intermarried with these other traditions? And so uh, maybe it helps to read a little bit of an example of this. Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it, it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite, remember Ruth's from Moab in the story, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with bread and water, but hired another prophet who cursed them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those in foreign descent. And it goes on to say that in those days, also I saw, uh, this is Nehemiah speaking, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, of Ammon, of Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah, but they spoke the language of various peoples. And I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon sin in such a way? Shall we then listen to you uh, and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And it goes on and talks about how they threw people off. Ezra 9 and 10 is an even more elaborate explanation of this story. And it lists tribes of people. And at the end of it, it says they cast out their women and children who were from other lands. If you go back to the beginning of this Ruth story, what would it be to be a woman or a child cast out in that society? You couldn't work normally. You had no way of surviving. If you're in exile and you come home, like they're not near their families. It's almost like a death warrant to, give, to send these people away. And, and they're breaking their families because what they think they need to do to be right with God is, I gotta isolate myself more. We gotta clear these boundaries up. It's us versus them. Here's exactly how you should live and let's push everything as far away as possible. And so let, let's, let's restore ourselves by kicking other people out and becoming an inward-focused people. And so it's in that context that someone writes the book of Ruth. And there's a lot of clues in the story that the setting and the time frame of the story is not when it's written. It talks about, well, back in the days of the judges, and it tells the story. And it says, well, back in that day, they had this custom about the marriage things. Um, it's written from a much later time. And so the author of this story is writing against something that's going on in his faith community. He's seeing people cutting themselves off, sending out women and children away from them, 
And instead, he tells a story about, let me tell you about Ruth, the Moabite woman. Here's someone who's faithful and loyal. Here's someone who's, who, when she had all opportunities to go home and to return to her family, like Naomi wanted, said, you know what? Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Wherever you get buried, I'm going to be there. You're not going to get rid of me. I will be there with you. And Ruth follows, and she works hard. And she's loyal to Naomi and takes Boaz and has a child and hands that child to Naomi. Here, you have a line. You have a future. And the story goes, and that child had a child who had a child, and it's King David. And that's kind of the winning card when you're having an argument in this fight of, you don't think that there can be a faithful foreigner? Let me tell you a story. You think that you want to be a pure community? Are you willing to say King David wasn't pure? The great king of our past is connected to this family tree in which a foreigner was taken in as one of them. And when you're living in exile, they lost their king. So David is who they're hoping for. They're wanting a new king, a new Messiah. And they're longing for a David. And, he's, and here this author is talking about that foreign person can be one of us. They can be accepted. And the Messiah might come from that kind of a thing. There might be a new David from that kind of a thing. And so he resists that temptation of becoming so inward focused and cutting everybody else out, making an us versus them, and he welcomes the outsiders. And so I think, what is it to have a resilient faith? There was two kinds of ways of going about that. You could try to isolate yourself, send other people away, make it a real strong stance of us versus them. Or you could take the Ruth route of being welcoming to the outsider, of having concern for those who aren't like us, leaving stuff in the field for those who are poor and, and who need it, instead of just harvesting everything for yourself, but letting some people come along, even if they're not from your tribe, to come and harvest. To be a resilient faith community, they treated others with compassion and dignity. If you remember, Boaz last week talked about how the community knew that Ruth was a worthy woman. They knew she was a Moabite woman, but they also knew she was worthy and was of value. A resilient faith community uses their privilege to empower those who are marginalized. Boaz could have taken advantage of Ruth last week, but instead, throughout the story, he kept empowering her, giving her more opportunities, giving her more uh, of the plenty. And he used his position that wasn't afforded to Ruth and Naomi to lift them up and to give them a hope and a new future. It's also important for a resilient faith community to have hope that new life can lead you forward. When they hand that child to Naomi, it could have been easy to say, you know, I lost my husband, I lost my sons, I don't know that I can trust this anymore. Like, what bad thing might happen to this kid someday? And to never really hope again. 
But the story ends that that kid ends up having the kid and a kid that leads to King David. There can be a greater future again. There can be hope in that new life. And a resilient faith community must have hope that new life can come forth. And so what should we do to be a resilient faith community? One thing that I think is really, really, really important is that we have to diversify our lives. We have to resist the natural urge to just be with those who look like us, who think like us, who act like us, um, but to appreciate and to value and to empower those who are not in our midst and who are not necessarily in our uh, sphere that we think are already on our side and are our allies. I think it's important that we know that unity is not the same thing as uniformity. So we can have unity and we can care about those who are different than us without having everyone have to look identically like us and think exactly like us. And so there's some temptations in a faith community that, oh no, this person thinks a little bit different than me or maybe they, they practice their faith a little bit different than me. And maybe I want to draw those boundary lines really tight and say this is the only way to do it. Um, but maybe we can expand that boundary like a rubber band kind of stretch it out a little bit further in grace. We have an opportunity to diversify our lives a little bit Tuesday night with the Interfaith Thanksgiving service. So if you want to meet some other people in our community that we don't normally meet in our worship times or in our own faith tradition, um, that's a wonderful time to come together and sing a few songs, uh, bring a dessert with you because we're going to have a little bit of a dessert kind of meal and conversation time afterwards. So that's a wonderful opportunity to diversify our lives. It's important that we be hopeful. Um, it's easy to be cynical and to expect things not to work out and to expect things to fail, but it's important to have hope and to have uh, faith that life will continue on. And lastly, I want to say that a resilient faith community needs to be curious. And I mean that by, we have to be curious intellectually. We have to want to learn. Uh, things aren't easy. Like, you could pick up Ezra 9 and 10 and say, this is the way that we be a good faith community. We kick everybody out. You could pick up Ruth and say, that's not how we be a faith community. That, we, we be a, we're a faith community by welcoming people in. And so, matters of theology and faith are not necessarily always easy. And so I hope that you will... Uh, Continue that journey of faith, of being curious and learning and growing and wrestling with texts and with uh, the church's history and theology uh, because there's a lot of really bad uses of the Bible and church history um, to harm people. But I hope that we uh, don't just abandon our tradition um, but learn from it and grow with it and be curious um, and so I hope, you know, if you ever have any uh, curiosities and you want to wrestle with a text together, you want to ask questions about a theology or whatever it is, I hope that you find that in our church community. I hope that you at least feel free to ask me a question and to talk about things that come up because um, I hope that we're a curious community. So uh, I hope that you appreciate uh, the story of Ruth. Because I think it's a really powerful story. Just the story itself is powerful. But the fact that you would tell this story to your community to say, 
actually, I think you should look at your neighbors a little differently, was a powerful message then and continues to be a powerful message in today's world in which we face that same struggle. When things aren't great, when we feel like there's not enough jobs or enough opportunity, we start wanting to turn ourselves inward and push out people on the margins. This is a book that speaks about opening those boundaries a little bit, a little bit more, having a little bit more compassion. And the way you get through trauma most effectively is having that community to do that together. So I hope that no matter what you're going through, that you have your own personal resilience, but we are so much more and so much better when we are resilient together. And so I hope that you feel able to be vulnerable and to be hopeful in this community.